This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today I'm going to play an interview I just did with Lucy Dacus, the singer-songwriter who just released one of the year's best albums. It's called Home Video, and it's really her third great album in a row. This particular album is largely based lyrically on what she found in her journals from middle school and high school, and it makes it a uniquely specific, uniquely confessional, uniquely personal album. And both musically and lyrically, it's just excellent. Her first album was called No Burden. It came out in 2016. Her second album was called Historian. Both worth checking out. She also put out a great EP called 2019 in 2019. She was also in an indie supergroup called Boy Genius with her friends Julian Baker and Phoebe Bridgers, who we've had on the podcast last year. And in the interview, we talked about the making of home video, the art of songwriting, the future of her career, Lucy's love for Bruce Springsteen, and really a whole lot more. Let's get straight into that interview. So you have a pretty interesting songwriting method. Your songs come together without an instrument. You have the lyrics and the melody, and then you go to your guitar and figure out what the chords are and build the arrangement from there. What are the sort of advantages and disadvantages of working that way? I feel like it works for me just because if a song can't function somewhat like a poem or like if the story isn't there, um, I don't think that I can save it with music. I feel like I just like writing songs that function without any instruments. In fact, like Thumbs on my record, I wished that I could have just sung it a cappella, but the arrangement we got to was like as close as we could get to that without it sounding weird you hung up the phone and i asked you what was wrong your dad has come to town he'd like to meet actually that's that's really funny i was going to ask specifically about that arrangement as everyone keeps talking about that is a song that you had started performing live and fans had agreed with your request to you know sort of not leak it online and and leave it as a special thing but it's a a very intense song that affected people really deeply continues to affect people really deeply but then you had to capture it on on record after all that and i think you did so with with amazing subtlety which tends to be a hallmark of your recordings to me is that is that sort of subtlety and tastefulness of of never anyone overplaying, always focusing on the song. But that must have felt like a particular challenge. Well, one, thank you. That's really nice. Um, but then two, yeah, it was the hardest song on the whole record because I thought, oh, it'll be really easy. I'll just play guitar and sing it the way I've been doing live. It's how people have heard it. But I just couldn't get it right. And we actually tried many takes like that 
And the first night, everybody in the studio wept, including me. And I work with dudes that we've all known each other since we were teenagers. And they're not always like emotional. It was like a very striking moment for all of us. We all hugged. We went outside. The smokers all had a cigarette and were like, can you believe we'd known each other all these years to lead up to this moment? And then we listened back the next day and it was shit. (laughs) And uh, so... We tried a full band idea, didn't really, it it sounded cool, but it wasn't right. And so I just said, I wish I could just sing it a cappella. And that's where we came up with the idea of just getting a vocal track, just to build on. And we kind of like put things in, took them out and like experimented. But the vocal track, I just sang uh, to nothing. Um, and it, we ended up with just a super personality-less synth, a occasional sub-bass, and a wind sound. All you need if the song's good yeah. enough, yeah, apparently. <laughs> Obviously, the sentiments expressed in that song uh, are very particular to a particular situation, but there's, you know, you, you let out these fantasies of violence and, and, you know, I mean, we should step back and explain. This scenario is uh, the estranged father of a friend you're not just randomly fantasizing about doing violence. It's uh, someone who you know must have clearly done something to um, occasion said fantasies. So tell me about letting yourself go to that place, because obviously it, it, it succeeded artistically. You mean in writing? Yeah. yeah. So um, I wrote it on a car ride to dinner. I was in Nashville recording some of the songs from the 2019 EP that I did, and we were just headed to this Thai restaurant smiling elephant and i wrote the entire song just in like one pass which surprised me a lot because the event that it's about happened many years prior i think like five years prior and i hadn't been thinking about it at all and my friend that it's about we hadn't even talked in a little bit so we actually got to the restaurant and I thought I was going to throw up. So I had to sit in the car while they got a table and I had to just like have a good cry and like keep the door cracked and like hang my head between my knees, um, which sounds so dramatic, but is, I guess, literally true. And maybe life is just dramatic sometimes. So, yeah, I, I don't know why it came on. And that's part of why I started playing it live is like I was trying to figure out where it came from and what it meant to me and like how I could get through it without feeling sick or crying. <laughs> hmm. um, and ultimately, like, having a year of playing it live did that. Wow. It's funny that the 2019 EP or whatever uh, release, covering those songs, covering things like Dancing in the Dark and In the Air Tonight, and getting those, because in order to, you, you didn't just cover them, you kind of rearranged them, you really got under their skin as songs. What did the experience of kind of, not just learning the songs, but again, getting under the skin of such classic and sort of classically constructed songs do, if anything, to the way you approach songwriting right after that? I learned so much. That's probably the thing in my life that I've learned from the most in terms of music, maybe other than like Boy Genius on a writing side, but sonically, like the... um I learned so much about the studio and about production and mixing and like preamps and mics and Hmm. pedals, especially in the air tonight, the Phil Collins song. I can feel it coming. 
I didn't know anything about synths and synths can be anything. And I know there's like this trope of like indie bands finding synths like a couple albums in. And I don't know. I don't give a shit about a trope. Synths are cool. And yeah, they can be anything. And I think I had told myself that so many things were off limits like synths and pianos and even like acoustic guitars. I was like, these connotations just don't match what I want to go for. And I think I just really didn't like people automatically lumping me into Americana because I don't feel like I make Americana music, maybe folk, but um, yeah, I think it was like just seeing like a little white girl with an acoustic guitar. People are really quick to just say new Americana act. So I wanted historian to be like distortion and electric guitars and like really fat drums But this time around, and after doing those covers, I was like, you know what, let's just make like the perfect noises that we can think of with whatever instruments are at our disposal and whatever technology we have. And is the piano on the record played by you? No, well, uh, on Hot and Heavy, one of the pianos is, and maybe there's another song, but pretty much everything you hear is either me Jacob Blizzard, our guitarist, who also played bass and a bunch of keys, and Jake Finch, who played drums, but also some guitars and keys and other things. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's a moment on Hot and Heavy when the, the sort of a piano lick comes in o- over the instrumental part. And it's probably, you're obviously a Springsteen fan. It, it, it seemed like the most overt Springsteenian moment uh, in your own songs. I don't know if it, it struck you that way. Yeah, that's actually the piano I played. I didn't think about that in the moment, but a lot of people have told me that, and it is a huge compliment, and it also makes total sense because I've been listening to him probably more than any other artist, like, for my whole life. Um, Also, Colin Pastor, who's, like, my friend and co-producer, he's a huge Bruce fan, so I'm sure that if I'm not making the reference, maybe he is. But actually, (laughs) at the time, I was thinking about that song Close to Me by The Cure, the instrumental on that, the kind of like plinky piano line, that's what was actually running through my head. That's how it goes. You aim for the cure and end up Springsteen. You just, (laughs) just the way influences. Not a bad place to land, honestly. How did the boy genius experience, you said that was the other big learning experience. What, What were the big takeaways from that for you? 
I think that it's just helped me on like a very deep level to know that there are people that I can go to and like look them in the eyes and they can tell me like, that's fucked up or that's amazing. And I just like really trust them on a personal level, just like as a human being. But I guess songwriting wise, I think it just made me feel like a lot more was possible and welcomed and um, that like fear doesn't really protect you from that much after all. Because I guess like some fear is warranted, but um, I think I was dealing in more fear than I even realized. And I think it was keeping me back from saying a bunch of stuff. So yeah, they're great. The sort of joke or whatever of the, of the name boy genius is that basically you all knew these male artists who had been told they were geniuses all their lives. And the, the idea was maybe you can act like them, like sort of, you know, carry yourself with that swagger. Have you gotten better at, uh, at being the boy genius, as, as to borrow the term? I feel like it's now a mood that I can access. I would not say that I'm constantly walking around like a superstar um, genius fellow, but sometimes I'll have an idea and I'll feel myself say, like, that's stupid, and I'll actively just be like, shut up. <laughs> I just can tell my inner critic to shut up more often. And I have written like a lot more because of it. I don't know if it's better or worse, but it's certainly like more. And I think it's a little more funny. I feel like the the stakes are actually kind of lowered when you respect what you think. I think it's Going Going Gone that has uh, those prominent backup vocals. And I think that's the one at the end when you kind of thank everyone in the take we hear you like I owe you and everything what what was what yeah. actually went down with the with the actual physical recording of that did everyone was everyone actually got together yeah so we did that October 7th of 2019 I'm pretty sure Phoebe and Julian were in town and the day before is when we recorded vocals on Haley Williams's record. And before Going Going Gone, we recorded the vocals for Julian's song Favor, Phoebe's song Graceland 2, and I Know the End, and Please Stay on my record. And Julian did a vocal on Triple Dog Dare as well. And then, yeah, I just got like maybe a dozen or more people in the room that I really love. Like some friends drove up from Richmond to be there. Liza Ann was there. Mitski was there. Phoebe and Julian were there. Um, my friend Allie, just like a bunch of singers and non-singers. And it was all of us in the main tracking room at Trace Horse, which is where I record. And one mic in front of me, maybe a couple mics in front of the group vocal, and then three guitarists, including Harrison Whitford from Phoebe's band doing like more leady stuff. I think they were all around a dynamic mic. And we just pushed record, sang the song and pushed stop. It's like a single take, no editing. And Sean Everett mixed the record and he sent one bounce back that didn't have the like talking at the end. And I was like, no, you have to put it back. <laughs> That's my favorite point, I think, in the whole record because we actually didn't even take photos that day. So it's like, it feels like the documentation of the room itself. It does feel like that. 
I think you've been asked this before, but maybe it changes day by day. What are your thoughts on a, a you know, either some kind of other official Boy Genius like project, product? Almost what are like my project. thoughts on it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are your predictions? What are your, uh, hmm. you know? I would love to do something like that. I think we all would, but I don't know. We've all had really busy years putting out our own stuff and it was on purpose that we all wanted to put out a new record and I don't think that it's for sure because nothing is but um we definitely like plan to hang out <laughs> there's at least i think like a group chat at the very at the very least oh there's a a very healthy group chat between us yes the transition from going going gone to partner in crime is really interesting because the sort of everything sonically about those songs is different it's almost like you're not sonically on the same album between those and yet it, it really works I, I don't know how conscious you were of that sort of sonic transition. Yeah, I was. Thanks for pointing it out. Because Gone, Gone, Gone is probably the least edited song we've ever done. And then Partner in Crime's the most edited song that we've ever done. And it originally wasn't supposed to be. The auto-tune was supposed to be temporary because I just sounded like shit that day. Right. Um, but then I thought it sounded so awesome and it started to influence the guitar tone and the drums. When I asked you So yeah, I wanted it to feel high contrast. I also feel like at that point in a record, a little more than halfway, you got to do something to re-engage the listener so that they're not feeling like everything is too samey in order to get them through the end of the record. Totally. And it works. I mean, it feels like you have a fairly nuanced take on the relationship described in that particular song. In fact, it seems like you're, you have more of a problem with the, with the kid in Brando. I could be wrong, but that's almost how it feels. And it, it did, I don't know if you followed the uh, latest twist in the uh, cat person discourse today, uh, because this I is, don't so, think I have. <laughs> okay. All right. The, uh, the, to just um, take a step back for a second, for anyone who's not sure exactly what we're talking about, there was a New Yorker short story that went super viral called Cat Person. And now there is a new essay on Slate in which a young woman says that her life was the inspiration in part for this short story, which was about an unfortunate encounter with an older man and a younger woman. But she says the, the details all got changed and the guy wasn't as bad in real life as he appears in the story. And it's just prompted a lot of debate about fact versus fiction, which is rather relevant to what Lucy is doing in her songwriting. That's really interesting. I mean, wasn't it fiction? Right. It was It was fiction, but apparently very... Some of the details... Like, was, I, yeah. I think that all parts of it are so interesting because as a piece, it like it stands alone. And just because it's based in truth doesn't mean that you have to tell facts in a story. So, like, I think it's totally fine to just write and know that that exists and like whether it's based on someone actual you've created characters even if you said here are the facts it's still fiction I think because of how you curate I don't think there's such a thing as nonfiction. personally <laughs> I think that that is like a delusion that people have because um, even science changes all the time you know 
but yeah, I've, I have been dealing with this in my life specifically about Brando. Um, the guy that it's about hit me up and felt hurt and we don't talk anymore. And it was like really painful, but I took it to heart, you know, that he didn't, I wanted it to feel cheeky and playful and it was about 10 years ago, but you know, he's like, I'm still a real person. And I'm like, that's so true. (laughs) And he asked me then, and I'll do it now to say that our friendship wasn't all bad. You know, like I was representing like one aspect and also from my perspective. Um, But yeah, of course there's people who are implicated at least in this album there's like real people implicated on every song and so that has made my stomach churn constantly (laughs) like before putting it out even after putting it out like these past couple weeks have felt really unstable because I've just felt like I'm interacting with different levels of praise and disappointment but yeah maybe that's too heady no, it seemed like you kind of ex- seemed like in advance you both expected and were a little concerned about because you felt like these people would recognize themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think what's cool about Brando is it, it's so hyper, hyper specific. It, it's a, about a friend you had in high school who uh, identified very strongly with uh, certain classic movies and stuff and I, I guess built his personality around that. And uh, you're just kind of like calling him on his <laughs> on his bullshit throughout the song, but I find it a very interesting song because it's it's not about some uh, some of the songs on the album and songs in general <laughs> can be about big betrayals, big things. This is just sort of a, a much smaller sort of microcosmic annoyance or feeling, and I think that's what's I, it seems unique to me in that way as far as songs go. Yeah, I think it's the smaller indiscretions that have longer lifespans in some cases because they slip by unbeknownst to you. You know, you learn a lesson and sometimes you don't realize you've learned a lesson and you just carry it through your entire life, you know. And that was, in this case, what happened. Like, I learned a lot from this friendship that I've actually had to, like, kind of unlearn. And there's stuff I did learn that I have kept with me that has been really great. But yeah, it's not something like a betrayal or a great loss or something that you absolutely have to notice if it happens to you. It's something that, I don't know, it might occur to you like it did with me like many years after the fact. You told me to skip school to go with you to the movies. You knew you were uncool, but you thought you could fool me. How much else already has it been a factor of hearing people, hearing from people who are depicted on the record? Has that already been happening in other capacities? Well, I had long conversations with my friends that like Thumbs and Christine are about before I even recorded them, just to ask their permission because those relationships are really valuable to me and it was really sensitive content. And um, basically the conversation has just continued and those haven't been, the Thumbs one has been only kind of like beautiful and like really, really good for our friendship. And um, Christine, it's been a little murkier. There's still some people. (laughs) I am wondering if they will hit me up. I'm some of them. I really hope that they don't. And some, I would be so curious if they actually did. So uh, I don't know. It, it still feels like it could come at any moment. 
Triple Dog Dare, which is the closing track, is a, a pretty amazing song. It's almost eight minutes long, uh, and it has a lot of sort of rising and falling, and it, it hits a pretty big crescendo. A triple dog dare, a triple dog dare, a triple dog dare, a triple dog dare, a triple dog dare. Tell me about crafting a song like that and it feels like I don't know how that works with your with your sort of process of no instruments in the composition because there's so much going on there I'm starting to think that a long song is just a failure of editing (laughs) Mm. I'm a sucker for a long song and I'm actually really happy with triple dog dare but the only reason it's long is because I didn't finish saying what I needed to say (laughs) I think that if you can tell a story in two minutes and it's concise and it works, that's to me like even more impressive than a a long song. I think the thing that is impressive about a long song, like if it works is like, if you can engage someone's attention throughout the whole thing, that's maybe kind of unique without it being like a jam situation. And I think that that's like kind of my goal whenever I end up writing. I write a lot of long songs. It's just because I have more to say. And for Triple Dog Dare, the first many minutes, like the first three verses, there's no repeated parts. And there's just this like growing loop. We use this pedal called Infinite Jets. It's like a hologram pedal that kind of like randomizes, basically a modular synth that randomizes sound. We like fed kind of like an ambient guitar track through it and I like kind of like turned up the intensity of it as the minutes went on like microscopic (laughs) turning of the knob and I think that that kind of like really subtly builds the tension over those many minutes hopefully it works I think that song feels kind of like a little short film anyways because it's very like visual and there's lots of settings and really distinct characters so maybe that helps as well What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. This album was built around your your sort of your your journals from when you were young. Was there anything that you wrote you allowed yourself to as as we've discussed to get pretty personal and revelatory and and to draw on on real people and real events? Was there anything that still got too close and and you ended up leaving out songs that were just still untouchable? Yeah, there's some songs that I haven't finished because I don't think I have gained the insight or the wisdom in order to know what to say to myself. And there are a couple topics that, no, I do not want to engage with in a public forum. Or maybe I'm still afraid of those phone calls that I would get. There's one song that we cut from the record, not because it didn't fit. It was like perfect thematically. Um, It was about in second grade, how I had this friend that we would go practice kissing for our future boyfriends. (laughs) Um, It's called like kissing lessons, but it was too cute 
Mm. Like we on the album, which is like very kind of lush and warm and nostalgic. It was like too punky and precious. It's like really short. So we had to cut it just because it didn't fit the vibe. <laughs> Interesting. You can save that for the, the cute record, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if there's going to be that one. Uh, never know. Never know. I have noticed this consistent thing of Americana is like the thing that you've always least wanted to be. That is like a term you're like allergic to. What's interesting is I, I don't really ever hear much grounds in your music to have ever for anyone to have ever applied that term. So was it just sort of a theoretical allergy or were, were people actually throwing that at you? People definitely were, especially after the first record. And um, I think my singing voice at the time, you can hear my Southern accent even Uh, more in the first one, which like I've always had a little bit of a Southern accent. My dad's from Mississippi. My mom's from Chicago. I lived in Virginia. It comes and goes depending on who I'm talking to. And people were like rootsy and yeah, it's just straight up Americana. To be honest, home video was the number one Americana album. Like it debuted at number one on the billboard chart of Americana. So even this record is somehow classified as Americana, um, which I don't understand, but also like, I don't, I think America sucks. (laughs) Like, I don't know the term it's like, I think folk music is cool. (laughs) I think Americana, it's almost like this, like, Like, I just take objection with the word itself. I'm just like, I don't want to be representing a history of American music. Yeah, like, folk doesn't bother me. Americana just feels like it's um, invoking this historical precedent that I think I have nothing to do with. Yeah, I saw your uh, Fourth of July post. I guess you're not, (laughs) you just are not feeling that whole thing. (laughs) Oh, our government's the worst. (laughs) I mean, it's like we're maybe, it's propaganda to say that we're lucky to be here. But like, you know, we are just like the evil, the U.S. military is like the most evil institution in history today. But anyways. (laughs) (laughs) I know that also you had finished this record well before the uh, the pandemic. Well, at least finished the recording. You were mixing and mastering throughout the sort of second half of last year, I guess. But Mm -hmm. what about the whatever writing you've done in this sort of, and there's, it's weird. There's a bunch of artists like that. They've had this like intervening period. They have records done. And then there's this like shadow period. Did, did you get some writing done? Were you very productive during the pandemic as everyone was, was uh, forced (laughs) to be pushed to be? Yeah, I definitely didn't put it on myself to like go write the great American novel, but (laughs) I did write. I, I just like always do. If someone forced me to go into the studio tomorrow, I could make a record but a lot of it would be on the fly. I realize like anything that I write now, is it not going to come out for like three years? So part of me like doesn't really want to write because I don't want to feel this amount of space that I did for home video between writing the songs and having people hear them. So yeah, I'm tr- I'm actually like trying not to write and still writing sometimes. Mm. Now that you've kind of dug so deeply into your own kind of childhood and upbringing how does that affect your thinking about where to go next for a subject matter i mean there's all the songs that i am not brave enough to share yet so maybe by the time i have to put out a new record have to i never have to put out a new record (laughs) want to um maybe i'll be brave then 
I have like two themes that I'm interested in. And I mean, it's so far off, I can probably just say, but like, I haven't really written any love songs hmm. ever, which I don't know if people have noticed. I have like a song about having a crush and I have a lot of songs about like loving your friends or complicated relationships. I have the one breakup song, Night Shift, but I kind of like have been dabbling in trying to write love songs. And then there's like this impending family album that I don't want to make, but I know that I can. About your family? Yeah. That'll get some phone calls then. <laughs> if you, if you, I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's yeah. like, I know I can make it. I just don't want to. <laughs> it's weird because uh, actually uh, Triple Dog Dare in some ways is a, is a love song to me. Wow. I mean, I think that's true. But why do you say that? Well, I, I you know, I think you're, it, it sounds like at least in the time that you're singing about, the narrator is in love at moments with the person they're singing about. So, yeah. In that sense. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's pretty simple. And it, yeah, I mean, that's the only song on the record where I like wrote a fictional ending. The first two thirds are based in what really happened. And then like for them to actually run away. Right. Like that's not what happened. In real life, the mother just kind of like got in the middle of our friendship, the mother, her mother. And we kind of like stopped hanging out and then sort of were antagonistic towards each other. It's only like in recent years that I have admitted that there was probably some, that there was like a romantic element there. So I guess you're right. It just feels like, it feels complicated. Like I just want to write like simply love songs like i you, right. you know when you feel like that's a love song and i i want to be the type of person that can write from that place totally because it's one of the to write a, a straight ahead simple love song is and make it original is one of the hardest things in the in the world i would imagine yeah mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean right in, in triple dog there at the end there's a fantasy of literally running away to the point where they put put your faces on the milk uh <laughs> running away together to that extent and disappearing forever so that's I mean, that's, that has a romance to it, obviously. Yeah, for sure. Um, but that's, the rest is all, the reading your palm and everything, the, the mom somehow, that all is, that's very specific. Yeah, she was a Catholic psychic, so <laughs> do with that what you will. The processing that's necessary to sort of transform these parts of your life into art how has it affected the way you now look back at some of the, just generally your, your childhood now that you've made this, this album? You mean like now that I have converted memories to art, do I, am I always looking to do that whenever I remember things? Or no, ha has it changed the way you see just like those years of your life, growing your teenage mm, years? Yeah. I think I've learned, <laughs> I've learned not to trust myself, which sounds really bad, but mm. I think that, it's actually been good in like opening myself up to the inevitability of change because I think because I journal so much, it's like I set in ink what I thought of the moment. And so it actually feels like that's just the truth and that'll exist forever. So it's harder for me to um, admit my own perspective or change what I say about the events of my life. But writing these songs are kind of like a revision process and 
that's okay. It doesn't make the journals wrong. It's just like, that's what I thought at the time. And this is what I think now. And maybe I'll make a record in 20 years that is a revision of home video. And that sort of gets back to your idea that autobiography is by its nature fiction. Yeah. I think you started playing guitar after you saw like a camp counselor with a guitar. You thought it was cool. And you, you bought a guitar and then you were you used to write songs for fun at sleepovers, which mm-hmm. is un, which is very wholesome and, and, art, and artistic. Those are cool sleepovers. And then it became a solitary process. So were you writing songs early songs at the same time as some of the events on this record? And are there like sort of early versions of songs about the same events in some cases? Not so early as like middle school. I mean, these songs are about that era. Like I think Cartwheel is a really good song to bring up in terms of like middle school and like my group of girlfriends at the time, like before puberty started and before like boys were the most amazing thing (laughs) in the world um yeah we would just like sit around and write songs about I mean like god (laughs) or write songs about our crushes or about traveling and like our or like pretended heartbreaks like we would just write songs that were basically mishmash from what we heard on the radio so yeah, I don't think any of that content would be usable. <laughs> um, it was all pretty bad, but you have to start at some point. So I guess like without realizing it, I was like practicing songwriting for like very many years before I wrote a song that I thought I could share with people. It strikes me as sort of the opposite of that, the the idea of the swaggering boy genius that you had written all the great songs on your first record with no particular plans to sort of let them out. What was your mentality at that time? And how did you sort of start? What was your path into writing as seriously as those songs, as opposed to just sort of messing around before that? Mm -hmm. I mean, my first songs, which like not, not even a no burden, like the first songs that I showed to friends as like, these are my songs. A lot of them were just trying to like participate in something. Like I had a lot of friends that made music And so I think I just wanted to have something to share. And then it kind of like amped up when my first love went to college and started dating a poet. And I was like, I can be a poet. So I like started writing poetry and some of them became songs and I would get on GarageBand and just like use the internal mic of my laptop. But for No Burden, a lot of those songs I wrote in procrastinating schoolwork or actual work like I would just prefer to do that (laughs) than whatever I was doing I don't know how to like really describe it I think a lot of writers also struggle to say like the song is just there I don't often get to choose when it's there I think that it's really just like a skill to like realize that you're thinking something that you ought to write down Mm. and have you thought about the fact that you seemingly couldn't recognize what the world would soon recognize that, that these were really fucking good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) that's nice. Um, yeah, it wasn't like a low self-esteem thing. It was like, a I didn't need anything from the songs. Mm. Like they just were what they were. And that still kind of feels true, even though it's like my job now, 
I never dreamt of being a musician. Like I've never been attracted to the lifestyle or like the glory or like, you know, almost famous that whole, like having people that are obsessed with you. And that's like actively something close to a sickness. I think (laughs) I really don't think that that's like a healthy goal. I know so many people whose goal is to just like be a star and like, um, I don't know, I guess I do. I care very much about songs and like writing, but I've never really sought any gain from them. I'm happy people think that they're good. Yeah, I guess maybe I'll stop. I'll just stop there. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. You ended up, and this is something that happens to a lot of people who come from a small scene and then become the most successful person out of the small scene, is you end up driving yourself out of your own <laughs> scene, your own mm-hmm. hometown. I mean, yeah. it, and, and that that is basically kind of what happened, isn't it? Yeah, so sad. I love Richmond so much. I was planning on being there my whole life. And the scene was so awesome. In 2010 to 2015 was like mostly when I was involved. Every night of the week, you could go to a fully local bill and it would be like a full crowd and like friends. And it definitely like replaced church for me for a while. And I only started playing shows because I had friends that were like, hey, we know you make music and we need an opener. You have 20 minutes, like you have to do it. People kind of just like gently pushed me into that. And it's not like they're a big, like, I mean, there's a huge hardcore scene, but like I would play bills with bluegrass bands and rappers and psych bands and other songwriters and folk punk. And it just felt like people put on shows for something to do and nobody was really thinking about making it big and if you did like that was just sincerely not the vibe you know one of my friends who I love and he wasn't trying to be mean he was like yeah the scene changed after you started kind of like making it and it hasn't been the same since and that like weighs on me and I think some people resent me a lot of people are super supportive but it breaks my heart walking around Richmond and like encountering people from that time, some of which just don't see me as a person, whether they think they're being nice or mean. So yeah, I moved to Philly. And you, you like live in like a multi, like with like five other people or something? Six. Six. And how has that been for like your state of mind and creativity to, to be in like a bustling communal situation? So good. Really, really good. I've never lived alone. I don't know if I'd ever like it. I think if I lived alone, I would, um, it would be bad for me for a couple of reasons. I just like the hustle and bustle and, uh, somebody like reminding me that I exist, you know, like addressing me and being like, Hey, I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a person. (laughs) Mm. Um, and I, I live with some musicians and some non-musicians and it's fun to like go into our basement and play music that no one's ever going to hear. And it's really renewed my sense of like enjoyment out of music. You started like a a semi-fake synth pop band or something during the something? Uh, Not exactly, no. (laughs) Yeah, we... (laughs) I'm trying to think if I should even talk about this. Because sometimes something's so precious that I'm like, should I just hold my tongue and keep that to myself? Car- but yeah, we we've been Cars too. It was called. I think you said it was. Oh, called, okay. Maybe yeah, then I. Yeah. This you is already, already out. Slip, we have yeah. a band called. Okay, fine. It's called Cars Two, and the two rules are: uh, every song has to be about cars, and every song has to be a different genre. 
That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, because we're running out of time, do you want to name a couple of your your, your favorite Springsteen songs and, and uh, say why? I'm just curious. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of my answers are nostalgic and probably a lot of my answers are... I know like Springsteen fans are going to all want like deep cuts, but I mean, Jungle Land is a masterpiece of songwriting. Atlantic City, masterpiece. I really like the song Long Walk Home, which is a later tune. And that's one that my dad used to play on guitar. I feel like people get dragged for loving Nebraska, but it's just good. There's one on the new record that my dad sends me. I'm going to look up the title really quick. Oh, um, Moonlight Motel. My dad, yeah, just like sends me that song and uh, says, oh, have some dust in my eyes. (laughs) Totally. That's a beautiful one. My like number one life priority is to go see Bruce with my dad. I've never seen him. And that's like, it's very crucial that we do that together. (laughs) And that's our show for today. Thanks so much to Lucy Dacus for joining us. Check out her album home video. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week here on SiriusXM's Volume. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast. If you can leave us a nice review on iTunes, seriously, that is really appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. And we will definitely see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.